We are in Matthew today. So if you would open up your Bibles there. If you do not have a Bible over on the resource table, I would encourage you to pick one up so you can follow along with us. And we are in Matthew today starting a new series. Very excited uh, to study this gospel with you. So we are at Matthew chapter 1. And we are going to read verses 1 to 17 of Matthew chapter 1. This is God's holy word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father, uh, father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheotil, and Sheotil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, Let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon our time. God, as we open up uh, your Gospels, as we open up the New Testament today and study Matthew, uh, we pray for divine light. Lord, as we just spent time reading a list of names, at times it seems foolish what we're doing. Uh, But Lord, we really and truly believe as you promised that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. So this time, though it's a list of names, is, is far more powerful, far more significant in meaning than we might give it credit to. So we, we pray to that end that you would uh, really illuminate the truth, that we would see how this is relevant and pertinent to each and every person here, and that it's of the greatest good news that we could possibly imagine. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Sometimes there is a buildup when you meet somebody for the very first time. Maybe it's a celebrity. Maybe it's somebody that you really have kind of looked up to. You really wanted to meet. You knew they were going to be somewhere. You waited in line for hours to finally get that person's autograph. And you might have read about them. You might have watched videos and interviews, but you don't really know them. You've never personally met them. 
Maybe it's a blind date. Maybe this is a blind date pre-2023. Maybe it was an actual blind date where you never saw the person. You could not go onto Facebook and check them out before to see what you were getting yourselves into. You were completely left trusting the judgment of your friends or family members before you met that individual for the very first time. Maybe you work for a large company and the boss of bosses is coming to your location, coming into town, and you've heard about him or you've heard about her, but you've never actually met them. And this day is going to be the day that you meet them for the very first time. I think in all these introductory meetings, they're filled with a degree of ignorance because you don't know the person. You have preconceived ideas, you have thoughts, but until you actually meet the person, you don't know the person. You're left with a lot of speculation, a lot of waiting until that day comes. Well, Matthew is a lot like that. There's been a lot of waiting for God's people for this Messiah to come. You could argue from the beginning of the Bible, because really the gospel was promised to us in Genesis after the fall. He says what? I'm going to put enmity between you and her seed. And that was the, the proto-euangelion. That's the first gospel. That is the promise that one day a Savior is going to come and fix and deal with what just happened here in the garden. But since that time, there's been an anticipation of this coming Savior, but it's been mixed with an ignorance of who he exactly would be and what he would be like. Well, the gospel of Matthew and our passage today is the big reveal. It's the big reveal. It's the the good news that this Messiah that everybody's been waiting for, that this Savior that had been promised so long ago, he is finally here. Through broken people and turbulent times, God has brought his promised king into the world to redeem a people. And now Matthew is basically saying, allow me to introduce you to this Savior. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to meet our Messiah in our passage today. Uh, We're going to begin our time by looking at the fulfillment themes. We're going to see very quickly in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus is the answer to many promises but specifically two very large, very important promises. Jesus is the fulfillment. So we're going to see that in our passage today. And then secondly, we're going to look at the family tree. We're not going to go to Ancestry.com. We're going to, we're going to go right here in Matthew, and we're going to see the genealogy of Jesus and how that is relevant to you and I. So let's get started. Let's pick up at verse 1 and see the fulfillment themes. Uh, as I mentioned, if you're visiting, this is our first week in the Gospel of Matthew. It's going to be a long, I think very rewarding, but it's going to be a long series. At some point, Andy and, our, Andy and I are, are planning on probably taking a slight break and maybe going to a smaller Old Testament book and then return to finish Matthew. That's still all up in the air. So for right now, we're going to be in Matthew for a while. 
But as we, as we begin it, I think it's very important for us to have an introductory preview of where we're going to go through the book. And, and chapter 1 allows that naturally for us. So I don't have to necessarily have a, a sermon on what Matthew's going to be like. We can actually start Matthew and it's going to tell us what it's going to be like. Uh, first thing we're going to see theme-wise, thematically, it's all about David's throne. It's all about David's throne. Read verse 1 with me. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That is extremely important in the gospel of Matthew, that he is the expected king. So I'm not going to do this, but I think we've spent enough time in 1 and 2 Samuel that I could probably call somebody up here and have you give me a brief kind of summary of what we learned about. I, I saw a couple eyes like, it better not be me. I could, but I'd have to think through it. Well, allow me to do it. So first and second Samuel. First Samuel started. It was at the time of the judges, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then the Israelites said, you know what? I have the solution. We need a king like the world. And what they ultimately were doing was rejecting the king they already had. And who was their king already? It was God. It was Yahweh. So he says, okay, I'll give you the king that you want. They give them Saul, and Saul fixes everything, right? Like, no, Saul's a train wreck. So then we have the next king, David. Now, David's a man after God's own heart, so I think we can rightly say he was a much better king than Saul. But did he fix everything? Not at all. And then we have this, this promise, well, well there's going to be this king that's going to be better. Because that's where we are left at the end of 2 Samuel. We're, we're longing for a better king, somebody that's not as disappointing as Saul, somebody who is not as disappointing as David. And we keep waiting and we keep wondering. Actually, a, a moment in David's life helps us illustrate this. It was when David was going to be anointed king. So God comes to Samuel and says, hey, I've got another king we're going to anoint. And I want you to go to this house. It's the house of Jesse. And Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. And he goes. And each time he sees one of Jesse's sons, what does Samuel think? Here he is. This is the guy. And it's like, no, 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 no. And then he goes through all of them. He's like, well, this is a problem. And he asks Jesse, he's like, is this all your kids? He's like, oh, no, there's one more. And it's like, oh, that must be the one. And what we see after 2 Samuel, if we would have went on more historically and went through First and Second Kings, is king would come, king would go, and yet none of the kings are the king that we're longing for. Listen to what Jeremiah later, remember, this is much later uh, historically. Jeremiah 23, 5, God promises this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So when we see here the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, what we're seeing is the answer to this. Do you understand that? It's the fulfillment. It's like when Jesus in the, the gospel stands up after reading from, I, I believe it was Isaiah, and says, 
This has been fulfilled. I am the, the fulfillment of this. That's what we see here, that Jesus is the promised king from the line of David. All these other kings, they came and, and they're gone. They did not have the longevity. Well, now the expected king is here. I think before we move on, as we consider this, I, I, I want us to, to point out a very um, important truth. You and I are extremely blessed that we are this side of the cross. Do you understand that? That There is a longing here. We're longing for that king to return, but we're not waiting for that king to come. The prophets, Scripture even say, they long to be able to look in and see these things, and you and I get to look back at them and see that the king has come. But do you long for his return? So he's the expected king, but not just the expected king, and this is important. He's the not as expected king. Did you hear that? He is the not as expected king. Now, allusions and statements of the king in Matthew, we're going to see 14 times that Jesus is the king. Language of kingdom, 54 times in the gospel of Matthew. And for example, Matthew 4, 23, he says he went throughout all Galilee, uh, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And what we see here in the midst of all this, this king and kingdom language, was there was a disconnect between God and Israel. Because Israel had different expectations. They did not match up. Now, you and I, I mean, I, I think we've all experienced those times where expectations were not met. Correct? I've heard some horror stories of people who go on vacations. Now, now back in the day, you would just go rent from somebody. But now we have Airbnb. We have Verbo. Verbo. And I, now we've, we've done Verbo once. Good experience. Uh, had no problems with it. But I've also heard horror, horror stories where the pictures and everything that they read about did not match up. And you show up there and there's like, there's a problem. And you see, that, that's kind of what happened when Jesus comes on the scene. On the part of the Israelites, it's, it's their fault. God didn't promise what they were hoping for. But what they were hoping for, what they were desiring was a military king. We need to understand that. At this point in history, they're on, under Roman rule and reign if you've read the New Testament, you see that, you know that. It wasn't pleasant. It wasn't great. And what they had longed for is to get the land back under their own rule and to have this king that would put them on the world stage as a world power. That's what they were desiring. They were looking for the good old days. So even historically, they were thinking a better version of the era of Solomon. When they had wealth and power and success and victory. And they said, man, this king's going to come and he's going to restore that. But he came with a different agenda. And that's what we're going to see throughout Matthew. There's going to be this constant tension and friction because God's people are wanting the one thing. And God's like, no, that's not what I'm about. For a great example is Matthew twenty two twenty one. They're asking to him about, you know, should we pay taxes? Should we do this? And then listen to what Jesus says. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then elsewhere in the Gospel of John, he says, the kingdom that, that I have, my kingdom, it's not of this what? Not of this world. 
So we're going to see this, that God's kingdom is different. He's got an eternal scope and purpose. So we're going to be, be dealing with that throughout Matthew. And I think as we study that and as we, we dig into that, I think you and I, we need to adjust our expectations of living in this world. Because I think sometimes deep down in our heart and in our core, we're guilty of what the Israelites, we want God's kingdom here on earth. We want our best life now. We want heaven on earth. We want, we want the Jesus part and worship of God and all that, but we want a life free of trials and tribulations. We want success. We want victories. We want, we want, we want it all. And what we're going to see in the gospel of Matthew is often there's going to be a tension there's going to be a dynamic between those two that just is not able to line up. And we're going to need to be adjusting to the fact that God's kingdom, though great and glorious, this side of glory is often filled with tension and obstacles and conflict and strife. So it's all about David's throne, but it's also all about the Abrahamic covenant. Look at the second part. It says, not only the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what we need to see is Jesus is the promised blessing to Abraham. Now, if you remember, in the Gospel of Genesis, for those of you who've been here a while, we actually, not the Gospel of Genesis, even though you could argue it's a Gospel, when we went through the book of Genesis a long time ago, we looked at this, Genesis 12, 2. Now, remember, Abram is his name at the time. He's a relative nobody, it's not like there's something special about Abram for God to come to Abram. And yet, God, in his, his mere good pleasure and his grace and mercy, he selects this man, Abram, to be the father of many nations. And when he, when he comes to him, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's a great promise. I mean, that's the kind of promise that you and I were pretty excited when God comes to us and says, I'm going to do this through you. But there was a problem. What was the problem? Abram was old. His wife was old. And she was without what? Without child. So it's a, it's a big promise. And then it ends up happening. This promise comes and it takes 20 five years before this promise is fulfilled. So much so that God ends up coming back to him and even promising. Uh, Genesis 17, verse 5 and 6, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So he continues expanding to this promise that I'm going to be uh, blessing the world in and through you. But then see what happened as this continues on historically is the Israelites lost the focus. They started thinking that the real gift the, the real fulfillment of this promise was all about some tangible stuff, such as the land and their standing as a, a nation. You know, we, we see this sometimes with children at a young age. It, it's always comical. And, and really, if we didn't feel bad as parents, we would do this. We would just buy our kids boxes when they're young for like Christmas and birthday. 
boxes or bags. Because what happens half the time? When they're really young, they'll open up, they'll see the gift, throw it over, go play with the bag, go play with the box. You know, like, but you would be feel judged, right? We would feel judged if we did that, if we gave that. Because like, did you get your kid any gifts? No, we just, we just wrapped boxes. It's way cheaper. They don't remember it anyhow. Uh, later date, no. That's really what Israelite, the Israelites are doing with this promise. They're so consumed with the land, so consumed with the nation, and what we see here, and what Matthew is drawing attention to you and I, that those things were all shadows. That the real gift, the real blessing, is what we're reading about right here. Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the the bigger blessing. Well, do you grasp the blessing of Jesus? Do you realize the gift that he is to us, the gift that we have in and through him? Ephesians 1, it talks about every spiritual blessing is in Christ. And I think sometimes we diminish the value of Jesus simply as he is our ticket to get out of hell. That's it. When we look at Jesus sometimes, that is the extent of Jesus. I won't go to hell if I believe in Jesus, but we don't appreciate that Jesus is so much more. Because he's not just the promised blessing, he's particularly bigger than you think. As we're going to see and as we unpack through Matthew, uh, they were so focused on the land and and the nation, uh, they wanted to be very uh, much in a better situation, but what God is doing is so bigger. I, I love uh, when I go on like maps online and you can zoom in. So you go from uh, kind of a big distance and as you keep, you can get really, especially satellite imagery, it's, it's pretty remarkable what you can see up close and, and personal. And what we see really as we think of Matthew is we zoom out and we start seeing what God is doing. Uh, Galatians 3.8 It says in the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Did you just put those two things together? God promised Abram, who now is Abraham, that you will be a blessing to all the nations. And then Paul looks back at that and says what he was really telling him was the gospel. That you're going to be a blessing because there's going to be this seed coming through this line that is going to be the Messiah who's going to save and redeem. And guess what Matthew ends with? The Great Commission. And how does the Great Commission end? And you will be my witnesses, like authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So go and preach the gospel. And, And to what extent? To the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. And that is Jesus. That is the blessing of Abram. He is the one we have to offer. He's bigger than David. He's bigger than Abraham. This is the growing kingdom. That we have the offer of salvation and reconciliation to a fallen world in Christ. That Jesus is that blessing. That's why in the very beginning where it says the gospel, according to Matthew, gospel means what? Good news. This is the best news. That the Messiah is here. That's why, I, as I said, we can, we can read a book where the very first section is just a list of names where naturally you and I, it's kind of a snooze fest. Like, oh my goodness, we're just reading names. No, it's more than names. This is our hope. This is our news that the Christ has come. And he's not just come for you. 
He's not just come for you. He's not just come for you. He's come for the world. He's come to redeem a fallen, broken world. What well, does this excite you? Are you offering this Jesus to others? So that's the fulfillment themes. David's throne, Abraham's covenant. We're going to see that time and again. There'll be many times where we're going to be reading, and, and so it was fulfilled, and, and this was fulfilled. And we'll see David mention, well, let's now examine the names, the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, also the language, too, very similar to Genesis, the idea of a new beginning. In the beginning, God created, well, the book of the genealogy. It's this beginning idea. First thing I want us to see is scandalous characters. Read verses 2 to 6. I just want to draw attention to some of the names. Uh, Abram was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Why is Jacob a significant name? What's his nickname? He's the deceiver. So we got the deceiver on the list. Then he goes down to the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah... The father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. What's the problem with Tamar being on that list? Tamar is not his wife. You know who it is? It's his daughter-in-law. And the reason it's his daughter-in-law is because he didn't make good on his responsibility as the father having his youngest son kind of step in on behalf of his brother who had passed. No, instead, she had to manipulate the situation and dressed up as a prostitute in Genesis 38. And good old wholesome Judah ends up staying with the prostitute and getting his daughter-in-law. This is the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, think of political figures. Political figures love to, to cleanly scrub their background. They hate having skeletons pop out. Uh, they're always, even on the beginning of a candidacy, usually their, their workers are like, all right, what's the worst you've done? We need to know about it, if we can hide it, if we can pay it off, whatever. It, is, it, it was always funny, uh, back in the presidency of, of President Clinton, he had a brother. Anybody know the brother? It was Roger. The Secret Service gave him a nickname. He was Headache. Headache. They couldn't stand dealing with him because it was one foot in the mouth after another. They just kind of wanted to put him away for four or eight years until he was done being president. So they did not have to deal with him. And, and isn't it crazy to think of the genealogy of Jesus? That he is comfortable enough in his own skin to have a very suspect heritage. So we got Judah. Uh, some other names. Rahab. What was Rahab's profession? She was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite, so she was somebody who is not an Israelite. And then right there, right in the middle, is kind of the crown jewel, isn't it? David, the father of Salmon, by the wife of Uriah. You know what that's saying right there, even though we know it, this is an adulterous relationship that produced it an offspring. Yeah, that, that is the genealogy. It's really what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27. 
God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's the genealogy of Jesus. But not just at the genealogy level. As we start thinking of his descendants, you and I are on that list. And I know this is going to hurt a little bit. We are just as scandalous. We are just as cringeworthy. When you start thinking about his line, and then there's Joe Hilrich. Like, really? Like, you let him in and start going through the names of all of us? And that is the, the, the people on this list. It's shocking. Do you see the unworthiness of so many of the people that God used to bring his son through? You see the scandal. But here's the deal. I don't think it's just that the people are on the list. I think there's a point behind it. Here's a couple points. One, he needed a human lineage because he is fully God and he's fully what? Man. So there's a significance there and we're going to see the virgin birth will take place. So he's still perfect and sinless. So he doesn't inherit their sin. It's very important theologically. We need to, to make that distinction. But I think one of the main points in why we have such a messy, filthy, dirty genealogy is because God is not afraid to be in the mess. God's not afraid to get his hands dirty. There was a, a TV show. It was a reality show. It was called uh, Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And he would do, he would like get to experience some of the worst jobs. Uh, one of them was a sewer cleaner. I gag watching it, let alone doing it. Another one, somebody's job was roadkill. Drove around and cleared off roadkill. That was their job. And most of us, let's be honest, unless the pay was pretty high, most of us feel that is beneath them. Amen? Say Amen. Because I know most of you are like, I would love to. I'm actually thinking about after college becoming a roadkill. No, you're not. You're not. Well, God's not like that. God's not afraid to be amongst sinners. And Matthew 9, 12, what did Jesus say? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So God in his infinite wisdom and love and grace and mercy, and it entered into this filthy, dirty mess of a world amongst filthy, dirty sinners for you and I. Look at even the author. It says the gospel according to Matthew. Really at this point on, we'll hear nothing. So a lot of it is church uh, tradition. We ascribe it to Matthew as one of the disciples. Guess what Matthew was? He was a tax collector. That was one of the lowest uh, viewed professions in the world at that time. It was despised. And, and of course, God would use a despised profession to be the one in whom he writes the glorious gospel of Matthew. Well, are you grateful uh, that God came to save a, a sinner like you? That he's not uh, afraid of that? I mean, that should give us great comfort as ongoing sinners, even though redeemed. That God is not afraid to be up in your life in spite of how messy you are. But not only do we see scandalous characters, we see a long, winding road. Read verse 7 with me. 
Actually, go down to verse 11. That's really the uh, one aspect of it. We're going to see jo- Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And then go down to 17. It's important. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Notice the duration of times. So many generations between promises made and promise fulfilled. 42 generations enlisted. Now we need to understand this is not exhaustive. There was actually more generations. So for whatever reason and how Matthew was led by the Holy Spirit to write it, it evenly fits into these 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Uh, I don't want to digress too much. You want to read more, I can point you in the right direction. A lot of theories why uh, 14 is in a, a grouping of what number? Seven. So there's probably something significant going on there. It might also have a tie to Sabbath, fullness, the seventh day. Uh, and if you know anything about, about uh, the, the language, uh, numbers can also have a value of letters. And they would, the way the numbers would work, it could equal David. So the emphasis is on David. Uh, I don't think that's the big focus. The big focus I want to see is this took a whole lot of time. And you and I, we don't like to wait, right? Do we? No, we don't. We like speed. Uh, the microwaves were made for a reason, right? It wasn't like, you know what? I wish we could make food take longer. No, somebody's like, how can we make this quicker? Might not be as good, but it can be quicker. I mean, Chick-fil-A, I think they have good chicken, but what's one of the main reasons we go to Chick-fil-A? The drive-thru, which failed me actually on Friday. So the one on Secor. So if you're listening, Secor, took forever. And we just ordered chicken minis. But I, I just, I found myself just getting so impatient. I'm like, you're Chick-fil-A. You're better than this. Get it done. Get it done. I think sometimes we view God like that. You're better than this. Get it done. I mean, couldn't God have like brought that Savior a whole lot earlier amongst the generations? You see, but God's not like that. Could God have brought the blessing of a child to Abraham a lot quicker than 25 years? Yeah, but he doesn't. You see, 2 Peter 3, 8, this is significant. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. And he goes on and says the reason he's slow is he's giving people opportunity to turn, to repent so that, so that none will be lost. Which means, translation, a lot of life involves waiting on God. Even now, you and I, we are waiting. We're waiting on the return of Jesus. Well, are you impatient? Are you impatient with God's timing? Are you okay waiting? I think one of the, the, the measurements of gospel growth and maturity in your life is when you and I not necessarily enjoy waiting, but are content in the waiting. I mean, I personally do not like waiting, but God's got a plan. God's got a purpose. So we see the duration of times, but also notice the detour, and that's what I read in verse 11, the time of the deportation. Notice the detours of trials. Notice that part of the waiting will be done in a way that is uncomfortable, is difficult. Longest trip I've ever made 
One day is I drove 23 hours with my, my lovely family from Florida. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. We went to Sanibel Island, drove back up, and our goal was to not take 23 hours. And uh, 75 twice was shut down. So we took detours off and went back roads in Tennessee and, and Georgia. And then I, I, reached a, I reached a breaking point, Kentucky, a little beyond the arc. And I said, we're getting a hotel. And I, I had mixed reviews in the, in the vehicle with my, my, my kids. One person's like, I don't see why you can't keep driving. That person wasn't driving. So, so tired, and we pulled off, and we stopped at three hotels, and at three hotels, guess what I heard? We are filled. And out of the rage of that, I drove to Dayton, and then once I got to Dayton, I was like, I can't get a hotel, so I was on fumes, and and like, I pulled in, I remember, it was exactly, we left at 5 a.m., we pulled in at 4 a.m. in my driveway. It was a long day, to say the least. Isn't that often our journey in this world? Because that's what we see here. Like, I I think we read over the deportation part, and we don't understand just how how significant that was. God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, right? They finally get the land. They live there. And then so many kings later, they end up being pulled away from the land. And you see, that's so significant because the land was always equated not just with God's blessing, but it was God's presence. That God was in the land. God was with them. And now this deportation takes place. Now they're no longer in God's promised land. They don't feel like they have his presence. So then they come back. They come back into the land. And now the land is no longer theirs. They're just simply inhabitants amongst a Roman power. So this is a big deal. And even in the midst of the deportation, listen to the word. And we, you might have it at home. We love taking this verse out of context. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. They said that God said that to them in captivity. And also around those verses, it also says, your kids' kids are going to be here. You're going to be here for a little while. But I have plans. Here is the fulfillment of those plans. Because I've got a Savior coming. That God purposely is allowing the suffering in the life of his people. Romans 8, 28, God working for good. You see, God is not simply tolerating obstacles in your life. God is not simply improvising God's not simply making lemons or lemonade when he has lemons. You understand that? God is doing a work in and through whatever trial it is right now. And as I look at out in our group, I know there's some trials. I know there's some health issues. Some even to the point of potential, this could be life-threatening depending on how things go. I know there's relationship issues here. I know there's financial difficulties. I know there's work. Uh, there's uncertainty. There's all of that stuff. Friends, understand this. That is a long winding road as a Christian. But you know who's on the journey with us? 
Jesus is. And God is using these trials to carry out his plans and his purposes. Uh, there's been a, a trend I've seen on, on social media uh, over the last few years. Uh, I don't understand how the algorithms work with what always shows up on mine. You can clearly tell I'm into sports. It's in every other uh, Twitter feed. It's something sports-related. Uh, but one particular trend I've seen is it will have a picture of somebody, it will have their name, and it will say that person's name is him. That person's name is him. And the name is usually a great athlete who has exceptional performance in the heat of battle, in this pivotal moment. Uh, For example, I think it was last week, I saw it. Once again, it popped up, and it was Steph Curry. It was a game seven of their playoffs, and he scored 50 points in this elimination game and won the, the series, so they were moving on to the next game, and it had a picture of him, and it said, Steph is him. And what it's highlighting is that he's that guy. He's, he's one of the best, maybe one of the greatest of all time, that he's not your ordinary person. Steph is not the guys I'm going to see here a few hours from now playing at the YMCA. No offense to those guys. They're not him. Steph is him. Steph is making shots like a layup from half court. Steph could make it from here probably more times than he would miss it. He is him. And I think what we see in the start of Matthew, in today's vernacular, Matthew in this very opening section is saying, Jesus is him. He's the focus of this gospel. He's not some ordinary person. He's not some just great teacher. He's not just some this and some that. No, he is the forever king that God promised David. He is the fulfillment of all the blessings that God promised Abraham. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the savior of the world that God's people had waited for so many years under Roman rule and reign. Now the wait is over. He is here. Salvation has come. And he's coming back, so we wait again. But at the end of the day, we need to understand that Jesus is him. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now. Uh, We thank you that even in a list of names, there's power, there's authority, there's significance, because this is your, this is the the genealogy of your, your precious son. He's our hope. That if he didn't come, if he wasn't born of the Virgin Mary, if he doesn't live the perfect life and die on the cross, then we are still in sin. We still stand under the wrath and condemnation of you. But because he did come, that he is the one, we can have hope. We can have assurance. We can look at death and not fear it. We can look uh, to the future and long for it because Jesus is the one. So we thank you for that, and we praise you for your grace and mercy found in the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.